Please listen carefully. Salutations, toppers, and welcome to today's episode of the Turn of Phrases podcast. I thank you for giving me some of your time today, and I hope this episode finds you well. Today, we're in the final episode of our five-part Sense series, with the sense of touch. We'll look at some phrases having to do with hands and touching. I have no ado, so let's get some hands-on knowledge about today's phrases, origins, history, and more. To be touch and go has a few meanings. It is mainly used to say something is unsure or dangerous, or that something is done quickly and carelessly. It can also be used to say that you're going to talk about something quickly and move on, but this is a less common meaning. We know this one has been in use since at least the mid-16th century. The first known use was in a 1549 sermon by English cleric Hugh Latimer. It was included later in a collection of sermons he preached to a young King Edward VI, titled Seven Sermons Before Edward VI, although that collection wasn't published until 1869. Here's a modern translation of what he wrote, quote, As points arise, I will refer to each of them briefly and elaborate later. I will refer to all the previous items, but only in passing. End quote. What's interesting about this to me is that it sounds more like the talk briefly about something meaning, which is one of the less common used meanings these days. The other meanings come into play in the early 19th century, and seem to be at least in part related to theater. In Rejected Addresses, written in 1812 by Horatio Smith and James Smith, we find the following quote, There is an art in writing for the theater technically called touch-and-go, which is indispensable when we consider the small quantum of patience which so motley an assemblage as a London audience can be expected to afford. End quote. They were basically writing about how their audiences had short attention spans, and so writing for theater was an unsure endeavor. In 1815, the memoirs of the Scottish clergyman Ralph Wardlaw were published, and in it was included, quote, "'Twas touch and go, but I got my seat." End quote. Okay, so we have a lot of early print uses meaning various things. So where did this saying really come from? The prevailing theories is that it either came from the stagecoach or the sea. James Houghton, an English bibliophile and publisher, published a dictionary in 1859 and included this about stagecoach drivers. Quote, the old Jarvies, to show their skill, used to drive against things so close as absolutely to touch, yet without injury. This they called a toucher, or touch-and-go, which was hence applied to anything which was within an ace of ruin. End quote. Then, in 1867, the Sailor's Word Book was published by Royal Navy Admiral William Henry Smith, which included, quote, Touch and go said of anything within an ace of ruin, as in rounding a ship very narrowly to escape rocks, and or when under sail, 
she rubs against the ground with her keel, without much diminution of her velocity. End quote. Now, these origins came out after the first known use in print, so could they be the real origin? Possibly, since they were just writing about definitions of things, and not saying that it happened at the time of publication. However, since stagecoaches weren't a thing in the 16th century, I'm more inclined to believe the ship theory. Unfortunately, it can't be proven, but it does seem plausible. Now, I think I've more than touched on this topic, so let's go and give some approval. Why are thumbs used by many to show like or dislike? Many people, including me, know that this one came from ancient Rome, used by the crowd to decide if a gladiator was able to live or die. Many people, including me, would be wrong. But we wouldn't be the first people to incorrectly think that this was the origin. This idea came into popular belief back in the late 19th century. In 1872, the French artist Jean-Léon Jérôme painted Police Verso. It featured one gladiator standing over another, looking up at the crowd, all who are giving the thumbs down as a sign that the victorious gladiator should kill the other. His painting was quite popular, and seems to be the starting point of the idea that ancient Rome is where the thumb became an indicator of good or bad. It's unlikely that Jerome meant to imply this, though, as the title of the painting, Polis Verso, simply means turned thumb. This painting may have given people a false idea of where the idea came from, but it certainly wasn't the beginning of the gesture. Pliny the Elder wrote about it in Natural History, written in the 1st century AD. Although it wasn't translated into English until 1601, I'll share the English translation with you. It said, quote, To bend or bow down the thumbs when we give assent unto a thing, or do favor any person. End quote. Now, some people think the Latin wasn't properly translated, that it may have actually said press the thumbs instead of bend them. But regardless, it does seem to show that thumbs were used in some way to show one's opinion since at least the first century A.D. Seeing as how Pliny recorded it in a work called Natural History, it is highly likely that this was in practice before he wrote about it. There are also some who believe, based on ancient writings, art, and artifacts, that the thumbs-up used to be the sign of something bad. But just as many seem to say it has always been the good sign. Even in modern times, not all cultures use thumbs-up as a nice gesture. For some it is bad, and even others use it just as the number one. Basically, humans have been using the thumb to show their opinion since way back in old-timey times, although no one seems to know exactly why or for how long. And while the meaning has changed over time or from culture to culture, I doubt the gesture itself will go away anytime soon. Now, let's make a promise. The pinky swear is one of the most sincere modes of making a promise that's out there. The main theory for this one is that it came from Japan, where it is called yubikiri, which translates to finger cutoff. Breaking a yubikiri meant you had to cut off your pinky finger, and maybe more, as it was supposedly accompanied by the following statement, which in English says, Finger cut off 10,000 fist punchings. Whoever lies has to swallow a thousand needles. 
Thankfully, that's not still required for your average, everyday pinky promise. Some people think this came into use because of the idea held by some in the Japanese culture that soulmates have a red thread of fate connecting them by the pinky. We know this way of sealing the deal made its way to America by at least the mid-19th century, as we find it in the 1860 Dictionary of Americanisms. It has the following as what should be said when making a pinky promise. Quote, Pinky Pinky Bobell, whoever tells a lie, will sink down to the bad place and never rise up again. End quote. I didn't find anything else about this one. People seem to agree that it came from Japan, even if when it started is unknown. Now, let's be idle. The devil makes work for idle hands, also said as idle hands are the devil's workshop, means that trouble comes when you have nothing to do. The origin of this one is seemingly unknown. One might think this one came from the Bible, since it talks about the devil, and while the idea might have, the exact saying didn't. The idea is referenced more than once in the Bible, one of which was in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 13, which says, And withal they learned to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers also and busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. 1 Timothy was written in the 1st century A.D., around the years 62 to 66, so the idea has been around since at least that time. As far as being in print, it was used by a 4th century theologian named Jerome, who wrote, quote, Do something so that the devil may always find you busy. End quote. Okay, technically that wasn't a direct quote, it was the English translation, but it shows the earlier idea from the Bible being used more like the saying of today. The first known use in print in English comes from Geoffrey Chaucer's Malibus, which was written around 1405. He wrote, quote, Do some good deeds so that the devil, which is our enemy, won't find you unoccupied. End quote. That's really all I found out about this one, but it's a popular one, so I wanted to share it. Now it's time for today's familiar quotation. Topper's today's familiar quotation is from Leo Buscaglia. Quote, Too often we underestimate the power of a touch, a smile, a kind word, a listening ear, an honest compliment, or the smallest act of caring, all of which have the potential to turn a life around. End quote. Thank you, Mr. Buscaglia, for giving us today's familiar quotation. All right, toppers, it's time for today's For Better or For Words, Love Advice from Old Timey Times. Remember that this advice is over a hundred years old, and I'm sharing it for entertainment purposes only. Now, let's hear from the ladies first. Don't let your husband sharpen lead pencils all over your drawing room carpet. He will be none the happier for it, and the carpet will suffer as well as the maid's temper. He doesn't do it out of pure cussedness, it is a mere thoughtlessness, and a little instruction will induce him to use the hearth or the waste paper basket. But don't row him, be good-natured about it. After all, 
most husbands are only grown-up children in such matters. And now for the men. Don't be riled by a bit of good-natured chaff from your wife. There is no bitterness in it, and she probably has to stand a good deal of the same sort of thing from you. All right, toppers, that's going to do it for today's episode. Thank you for lending me your ears today to turn some phrases. As I always do, I hope you enjoyed the episode and that you learned something along the way. Check out my website, turnofphrases.com, to find out information about the show's social media, for details about the music I use in the show, and much more. Also, check out the show notes for links to the Podfix network and to my merch store. If you had a good time listening, please consider subscribing or leaving a rating and review. Last but not least, if you know someone who'd enjoy the show, please tell them about it to help spread the word. Thanks again for listening to the Turn of Phrases podcast, researched, written, hosted, and produced by me, Brisky. Until next time, toppers, stay in touch. Toodaloo! And now... This is... Let me rephrase. In 1815, the memoir... Memoir... Memoirs. That's what a lion writes about his life. (laughs) That was really dumb, but I love it. Okay. In 1815, the memoirs of the Scottish clergyman Ralph (laughs) Ward... No, I can't say anything right.